Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Non-Compliant. The interview was recorded live at Unsound Festival in Krakow last year. That night, Lisa Smith would close the main room of the prestigious festival, capping off what was her first European tour. It was a ridiculously overdue piece of recognition for the DJ and producer from Indiana. She'd been a cult DJ in the Midwest for 20 years. So while the newfound success was a surreal surprise, it's a vindicating testament to her stubborn persistence and love of techno. In conversation, we get a genuine sense of Smith's roots and the way she sees the world. It hasn't always been a smooth ride, but it's easy to hear why she's become a leading voice for women and the LGBTQ community in dance music. Combine this with her penchant for network building and her raw skills behind the decks, and you've got one of the most charming figures working in the scene today. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with non-compliant is up next. AKA non-compliant, formerly known as DJ Shiva. How's your own sound going, Lisa? It's really fun. Yeah, I got to see Nina Kravitz and Um Fong melt my brain last night, so. Nice, is brain melting. I, I'm in a great mood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like you had a pretty busy week. This yeah. is your second time on this stage already. Yeah. Yesterday, you DJed NTS. Tonight, you're closing room one of Hotel Forum. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> and um, am I right in thinking this is the beginning of your first kind of proper European tour? Yeah. And that all kind of happened very sort of fast. quickly. Yeah. <laughs> After 20 years. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that's, I wanted to ask about that. Um, I guess, first of all, um, having this moment sort of come rushing in, it, does it feel kind of uh, surprising or surreal to you, or did you were you always kind of suspecting that it might finally click? Definitely surreal. I mean, I'm kind of stubborn, and I just sort of love what I do, so I just kept chugging away. But I mean, I'm I'm 45, so you know there was kind of that moment where I was like, yeah, you know, I guess it's not going to happen. I'm just going to play regionally wherever they'll have me, and cool, I'll have a day job <laughs> and play techno. <laughs> so it's su- slightly surprising, but also slightly vindicating. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, after 20 years, you do kind of hope something will happen. So, yeah, I'm enjoying the hell out of it. So I feel like, or I'm not an artist myself, but I imagine that as an artist, one of the big challenges is staying determined, even when you're not getting, you know, maybe the, the validation or the sort of clear success points that you might be hoping for. Um, how did that work with you? Or, you know, how did you stay so committed and passionate for all that time? Well, I mean, I'm a nerd who likes techno a whole hell of a lot. <laughs> um, I did have some weird downtimes. Like, uh, I mean, sometimes it was literally just I'm playing at my house. Um, and... I had some nice refreshing things like back in like 2005 techno got a little like drippy sink for me <laughs> and not it was more shishi frou-frou and less unwashed masses and I tend towards the unwashed masses side of things um, I kind of wandered off into dubstep land for a little while which was really at the time in 2006 incredibly varied 
and um, amazing music. So I kind of went off into Bassland for a while, which was really refreshing, actually. It sort of refreshed how I play. I switched over to Ableton because I didn't like how... It wasn't made for techno DJs, and I play like a techno DJ, so I would like edit everything on the fly, and mm. so it really refreshed my approach. And then, and then that started to get a little EDM-y. I call it car repair step. Sounds like a broken car. Yeah. So, and then techno kind of started to really refresh itself again too. So I, all of that sort of fed into me keeping things interesting, and then. When I couldn't, I mean, I don't hardly play at home at all. There are no techno events unless I'm doing them, and I don't have time. So I started doing, that's why I started doing the radio show, Subterra Radio. And that was literally just, hey, I can have a, a residency in my house, pants optional. <laughs> <laughs> and I did that for four years, and just, that's what I've been doing. And then last year, sucked. And then this year doesn't. <laughs> Here we are. Yeah. And you stopped doing the radio show in order to focus more on making tracks, right? Yeah. I, I actually, when I came over here for the first time, um, I came back and I was just done. I was kind of committed to doing something new at that point. So, mm -hmm. and that was, um, yeah, I just kind of threw myself into making music. So your first time playing in Europe was last summer at Room for Resistance yes. in Berlin, right? Yes, it was very fun. Um, so I guess you just kind of touched on it that you came away from it sort of with I'm feeling inspired, feeling like um, something new and exciting was starting. But um, what was that experience like, like finally getting booked to play abroad and then kind of getting airlifted into this vibey outdoor garden party? Pretty amazing. I mean, what was interesting is... Um, you know, I think we've all got the, especially in the U.S., we've all got the dream that somebody's going to discover you and they're going to pay for your ticket. <laughs> well, that didn't happen. Um, well, my friend Tom Linder from uh, uh, Detroit Techno Militia actually was like, buy your own ticket. Go. Just go. Tell somebody you're coming. Get a booking. See what happens. And um, I work for a nonprofit, so buying your own ticket is a complicated process of <laughs> months of saving. So, but I did, and I just... Uh, we have kind of a little, little, our own little women's network underground thing, and I just sort of put out the call, like, hey, I'm going to be here. And Luce from Room for Resistance was like, hey, we've got a party then. Let's do this. That's how it happened. And my best friend had just moved to Berlin temporarily, so I had a place to stay. I had a gig to play. I had a ticket. And that's what happened. What did you mean when you said... We've got an underground women's network. Well, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's just like a little sort of, you know, our own little group of people. We talk. You know, there's the, we have to participate in the networks that are already here. But then there's the thing that I've always wanted, which has kind of happened, which is sort of a, a separate little network of women. And, you know, we all support each other and talk to each other and, you know, find gigs for each other. And, yeah, it's just sort of our own little thing away from the prying eyes. <laughs> so. Yeah, it was interesting that yesterday you were talking about um, the need to keep uh, checking yourself, as mm -hmm. you put it. And yeah. you use the example of, like, making sure the tracks you put in the mix, um, well, you know. I failed on that <laughs> one. <laughs> in that particular instance. But, um, but I, when you said that, I sort of sensed an interesting connection that, um, so Room for Resistance was your first, like, you know, um, first gig outside the US, long, long overdue. And that party has a policy of, you know, um, yeah. only uh, basically non uh, Women, straight male femme, DJs, yeah. Queer, um, trans DJs, yeah. Yeah, and Nazira, who was color, sitting next yeah. to you, um, she got booked there as well, um, mm -hmm. presumably, you know, somewhat as a result of that same policy, yeah. um, which I guess kind of speaks to the importance of that kind of thing or how that stuff actually works and yeah. um, you know, causes change. And that's part of those networks that you build, you know, like that kind of happened last night. Like there's been a lot of Facebook friending today <laughs> and yesterday. So yeah, those networks are really important too, because we all have to kind of deal with the, you know, for lack of a better word, overground networks dealing with... Um, Sorry, all the good old boys network. 
But um, <laughs> but yeah, that was and that was actually such a. I was like, I was a little bummed on that trip. I was like, oh, I only got one gig. It was the <laughs> perfect gig. It was perfect. It was literally like if I could only ever play one party ever again, that one was like the pinnacle of what I what I wanted. You know, like queer people, women, people of color, supporting each other, playing techno. So that's what I've always wanted and never had. Mm. So it was absolutely perfect. So um, Indiana. <laughs> um, for people that don't, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, for people that don't have a clear mental image of kind of where you grew up, I think of um, a lot of corn <laughs> and a lot of uh, Dixie flags. Even though it was in the north, um, Indiana was historically one of, at the beginning of the 20th century, Indiana was pretty much um, KKK run. Our state government was KKK. That's the kind of state Indiana still is. We still have places. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a thing called sundown towns, but in, in the oldie days, and still today, there are towns where if you are a little brown and they see you out after sundown, you're in trouble. So that's the kind of place Indiana can be. There are good people there. There are some shitheads. The shitheads run it. So. <laughs> yeah, I think... In the past, you just described it as a garbage fire. Yes. <laughs> or as I was, I was telling the, uh, the volunteer who's, who's been hel helping me around town, that um, like also culturally, it's kind of a vacuum. Like th there is a growing art scene, but that is not really what Indiana is like. But I was talking about the architecture here, which is beautiful. I've been enjoying it. But I was like, if you want to know what the architecture in Indiana is like, think of a loaf of white bread. <laughs> That's pretty much the culture as well. <laughs> so it's a strange place to be from, but because of that, it, it breeds a special kind of weirdo that I love. So, Well, and I mean, I'm sort of struck by whatever else you can say about it. You were plugged into what, for my money, is the, one of the great kind of music scenes of our time, yeah. which is the Midwest rave scene yes. in the 90s. Um, so how did you first stumble into that? What was your introduction to that world? Oh, well, I'm actually from a small town on the southwest tip of Indiana called Evansville, or as we affectionately refer to it, Evans Patch. And um, <laughs> I was in the punk scene there, and we had a lot of, you know, little DIY clubs, and we would throw shows in park shelters. And um, my friend started a little club <laughs> in the loft at this, like, pool hall and um, there was a great college radio station I heard like Lords of Acid and Radioactive Goldfish randomly and, and The Prodigy which was great I was obsessed with The Prodigy um, but you couldn't find that music in Evansville at all so occasionally I went up to Indianapolis which is about four hours north and found like Orbital uh, Rave Till Dawn if anyone remembers that one um, just random rave CDs. And then one day I was hanging out with the, one of the people who started the club, and he also had rave CDs. And I was like, you listen to this music too? And so we started throwing raves, which <laughs> we had no idea. This is, this is like, there was internet, sort of, like... At that time, you had like prodigy.net where you had to pay a quarter per email. My mother will tell you how much I screwed that up. But um, <laughs> I made lots of friends at a quarter an email. Um, but yeah, so we just started throwing parties where we literally just played CDs of like, you know, Orbital and uh, PragaCon, who I still love, whatever. Um, but it could be anything. It could be. I particularly love throwing Susie and the Banshees in. And, you know, we would end the night with Dead Can Dance. And literally our first rave was this loft with a pounding sound system, CD decks, no pitch control, just a couple CD decks, a strobe light, and 25 people dancing in their underwear. It was great. And then we started doing them every weekend. It would be 
punk shows on Friday, rave on Saturday, and Evansville is so small that all the freaks and weirdos would show up. So it would be the punk kids, the goth kids, the skaters, the hip hop kids, the, the deadheads, you know, any kind of weirdo would all show up and there was no, nobody cared, <laughs> you know? And if anybody came to make fun of people dancing, we would mock them mercilessly on the mic <laughs> until they just shut up and dance, so. You will dance. <laughs> but I mean, that's what we did for ages. And then finally one day, somebody brought me a flyer from a rave in Indianapolis. It was just called Acid. It had this Classic. little like yellow caution sign, just said Acid. And uh, I didn't get to go to that one, but I got to go to one in Louisville called Eccentric. And that was it. I was hooked. Weird, wonky, inorganic. <laughs> crazy noises. I love that shit. So <laughs> it was all about it. But yeah, and then it just, that was like 93. And then it was just, you know, who's got gas money? Who's got a working car? Let's go. You know, you just call up a bunch of friends. If they could pay you gas money, maybe, maybe you could get guest list. So, you know, you'd be like, I'll give you guest list if you pay for gas. Yeah, it was, it was, Beautiful times. <laughs> and I guess you were like... And gas was cheap back then, too. <laughs> Not so much anymore. Um, and you were kind of like a drivable distance from Chicago and Detroit as well. Chicago was always... Man, during those days, Chicago was a crapshoot, though. From Evansville, Chicago is eight hours. Oh, really? Okay. So I didn't... Chicago was an investment, and when... What ended up happening is every time we went to Chicago, shit hit the fan. <laughs> like, anyone from Chicago will know what I mean when I say Lady Bust. There was a party called Ladybug 2, and we drove up, and our car broke down an hour outside of Chicago. We literally paid a taxi to drive us an hour into Chicago. It's like a hundred something dollars. I don't know what we were thinking. We get to the party, it's busted. Everybody's hanging out in the parking lot. We're like, fuck. And then the cops show up and start running everybody out of the lot. And this like van full of kids from Ohio is like, get in the van. <laughs> Got in the van and they like, we're like, take us to a hotel. So we go to a hotel. We were there for three days. I spent all of my money, of which I did not have a lot. We were eating at one point, my friend, made white bread, Captain Crunch, and sugar sandwiches. <laughs> I think he might have actually put bologna on there, which I was like, no. But um, I, there were no cell phones. I was plugging quarters. I knew the promoter of the party, and I'm plugging quarters into the payphone, trying to catch him. And finally, after three days, he answers. He actually gets us a hotel back in Indiana, closer to our car. And then one of our friends calls her uncle, gets him to drive up in an RV to pick up the car, tow it, put us in the RV, and get us back home. Didn't go to Chicago much after that. <laughs> so we went a lot to, uh, from there, uh, we went a lot to St. Louis, where uh, Superstars of Love did a lot of parties, also had a lot of busts. But they would have, they have a really cool like loft apartment thing in St. Louis, which we don't have a lot of in Indy or Evansville, but um, so people would throw after parties in like lofts. I saw tracks on a, the, the only speaker in the, in the place was a bass amp sitting on a counter and <clears throat> I might have eaten a lot of acid. Um, I heard Josh Wink's Don't Laugh coming out of that speaker and like looked at my friend like, it's laughing at us. <laughs> We had a great time at that party, though. So that would, there would be a bust, and everybody's like, oh. I'm like, no, there's an after party. It's cool. We'll find it. I was like, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Groove. Yeah. Where you just drive around till you hear the bass. That kind of happened <laughs> a few times. But yeah, St. Louis, Indy, we would come up to. Uh, Louisville was actually fairly close. Nashville, actually, which isn't quite Midwest, but they had a really great house scene. I saw Daje live down there, so... And then in like 96, I just took 50 bucks in my car and moved to Indy and lived in the rave cave. It was a house full of ravers. It was insane. <laughs> but at that time in 96, I mean, I had just started DJing in 95 and uh, 
you could play Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, somewhere. It was crazy. Just in... Um, Sometimes just in indie. Like, indie was pretty hopping at the time. But, yeah. It's, Chicago's closer to indie from there. It took me a while to, to really get back to Chicago, though. It took me 10 years before I ever got to play Chicago. So would those be all, like, illegal raves? Some. Yeah. Most, maybe. <laughs> but yeah. then that kind of, like... Um, it seems like that era ended kind of abruptly, or like the cops started busting everything. 2000, yeah. We had a big party called Disco Mojo that got busted in Indy. They were permitted. I've actually seen a video that somebody took kind of holding by, by their leg of the like a state attorney just being like, I don't give a fuck what permits you have. You're, you're done. So, yeah, they, they actually, the mayor of our city, we used to use off-duty police officers t for security because, you know, what you really need is a bunch of civilians trying to, trying to tell drug dealers to get out of the party. That's safe. <laughs> the, the mayor proclaimed, whatever you call it, gave an order that the off-duty cops couldn't work security for us anymore and then accused us of doing these things illegally and so underground that, that the authorities didn't know about it. Like, we're hiring your fucking cops. <laughs> you guys know where it is. <laughs> yeah, they did this whole article, like, which, interestingly enough, I got quoted on, and my real name was in the article. And you can believe me or not believe me, but believe me, my phone was tapped after a while. And I didn't, I didn't do anything with DJ, so when I heard the clicks and pops, I'd start talking about, like, meatballs or shit. I don't know. I'd just start <laughs> shit-talking. Like, you know, but you're going to hear me talk about cats and sci-fi. Why are you bothering? <laughs> <laughs> they just figured you were some kind of important figure in this scene? And yeah, must be a drug dealer, because the mayor, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, there's, there's no way you can stay up that late without drugs. And I'm like, have you ever fucking heard of coffee? <laughs> Like, I pound Mountain Dew like there's no tomorrow, you know? I'm not saying I didn't do stuff, but I don't really do a lot. Yeah, sure. I'm not a straight edger, but I'm kind of boring. <laughs> so just, just give me sugar, caffeine, I'm good. Um, this stuff, whatever. <laughs> the atmosphere at those parties, was it still kind of like, um, were those parties sort of like a haven? Um, for Misfits, the same way as those early ones that you were doing? Not so. I, I think, yes, yes, they were, but in a very different way. Just because the things we were doing back home, it was, we had no idea what the fuck we were doing. We just did whatever. We'll just play whatever music. There was no, like, rules at all. If there were, we didn't know what they were. So we just did whatever. And then, you know, anytime you have like a larger scene, things become sort of formalized. As formal as, you know, pacifiers and fat pants can be. But, but you know, there, there becomes that sort of sameness, that sort yeah. of fashion thing. So, but it was still, I mean, the vibe was great and people were still pretty rad. I was, it was really funny though. I didn't wear fat pants and I would roll up in like leather biker jacket looking like me and they're like what oh she's got a record crate okay she's cool <laughs> so you kind of get away with it if you're a DJ I guess but yeah there was, it was still there were lots of freaks and weirdos and I still know a lot of them so I sort of get the impression that um, uh, in a lot of cities especially today going out to clubs is sort of uh, <laughs> what I was going to say compared to what it has been in other places in the past it's often kind of um, a lifestyle thing or a consumer um, experience yeah. to some extent. It's a little too tied to alcohol for my personal preference. But yeah, you mentioned yesterday your stance on alcohol. Hey, I love a good beer, but you know, when people are there to basically drink and like paw all over women, I'm kind of over it. Hmm. So, and, and it just becomes, there are still places where the focus is the music. Like, that's why I like Smart Bar. Hmm. You know, people are there to get the fuck down. Hmm. It's a great sound system. You're always going to hear the best DJs. So, Places like that are really awesome, but for the most part, clubs are just a little weird to me. Mm. I like dirty warehouses. <laughs> well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I get the impression that that world, uh, the Midwest rave scene, was what it offered to the people who came to those parties was something a little bit more than a really fun night. Um, it was 
maybe like you know a sense of um, community or a sense of belonging. Um, I mean, I, I have friends that I met there 20 years ago that I'm still like really close with. You know, my best friend I met DJing at a rave. We were both DJing. Like, you know, some of my really close friends who live in Detroit now, like. I met at parties. My friend John was, we called him the pixie stick guy. Always had pixie sticks, man. This crazy looking dude with red hair and a goatee running around a big long coat and pixie sticks. And he was there at the rave cave when I moved in that day and he helped me clean out my room. And like, that's who I stay with every year when I go to Detroit for movement. And him and his wife, like, I still know them. They're like some of my closest friends. So yeah, I mean, there was... It was a good time. <laughs> There's a lot of people I still know from back then. Most of my friends, really. Um, what about for you personally? Like, um, you know, we started off and you were talking about the politics of uh, the region and everything. And I imagine you're sort of like an outsider from the get-go. Uh, what, what did you get from from these events? You know, beyond learning about great music. You know, like I said, I never, even like with the, whatever the current fashion was, I, I wasn't one of those who fit in, really. I'm, I just, this, you know, I, I'm basically a 45-year-old who dresses like a skateboarder from 1995, <laughs> so that perpetually, evidently, but um, yeah, I always felt a little, a little like a weirdo in Evansville, I never fit in, um, but nobody gave a shit. I mean, give a shit. You can just show up and, you know, put... I remember... I'm going to use somebody else as an example, but this kind of says what I need it to say, I think. Um, I had a friend who was very... Um, she had a rough time. A lot of people judged her for a lot of stupid shit. Really talented, though. Awesome lady. Took her to a rave once, and she was very self-conscious because she got fucked with a lot. And I, and I basically... <laughs> I fed her acid stuck her in front of a huge speaker stack and said, I'll be back in an hour. And I left. She's like, what am I supposed to do? I'm like, dance. I come back later and she is just gone. She's having a great time. She doesn't give a shit if anybody is watching her at all. She's got her face right in that speaker and it's just going. And that's really it. Nobody cares. You just put your face in the speaker. You don't have to worry about what anybody else is doing around you. You know, they may have their own little, you know, dance they've all agreed is the dance du jour, but you can just, you know, shake your butt and pound your fist and stare into a speaker grill for a few hours. <laughs> Get transported into the portal of the subwoofers. <laughs> I may be speaking from experience. <laughs> Thanks, Mike Dearborn, for that one. But yeah, so it was. That's all you really, all I need is this. That's why I don't like clubs. There's not enough speaker stacks. When they fly the speakers, I'm like, no, it's supposed to be right here. That's why I like Smart Bar. You got the left front speaker. You just put your hands right on top of it and just go. <laughs> More speaker stacks, folks. I read in an interview you did um, with RBMA, you said something like, um, if, if it weren't for music and um, that rave scene, you're not sure you'd be alive today. Probably. Um, wh what do you mean by that? Or can you sort of explain that? I mean, bit? you're a queer kid growing up in the cornfields of bumfuck Indiana. You know, I got harassed by, in high school, in junior high, there was a group of like five girls who just decided they didn't like me. So they just told me they were going to beat me up every day. So, you know, and I was always one of those people who was just like, I'll, I'll put on the front. I'll be like, okay, bring it. You know, I'll still punch you in the face, but I don't want to have to get into that, you know? So, and I went through, oh my God, all the teenage angst and all that shit, you know, piercing my own nose with a needle and all that <laughs> bullshit, you know? <laughs> so, and it's a very claustrophobic feeling being in that environment. I mean, there was like one gay club in Evansville. Oh my God. It's like an old, like, Looks like a Western saloon. You can imagine I really love the musical selection there. <laughs> so, I mean, there wasn't even... I went to the gay clubs, and they were... It was good to have those places to go, but, I mean... I just hated the fucking music. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Music has always been the place I go to. You know, I've been playing music since I was a kid. I played violin. I played guitar, bass, whatever I could get my hands on. And... Uh, you know, skateboarding was a nice outlet too, but then I hurt myself and that was done. Um, yeah, it's just sort of my, 
my solace, my meditation. It's the, it's the way I connect with the world. So when, when you don't feel like you're a part of that world in any way, like if that's your connection, then that's what keeps you going, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, and I mean, it's been, and it's been continual. It wasn't just the teenage angst. I mean, you know, I moved up to Indy. It's been a, a, a struggle for a really long time. I was really very, very poor. I would forego food for records, though, because I was a dumbass. <laughs> so, I would forego food for records because I was a dumbass. But, yeah, I struggled a lot. And even just a few years ago, I mean, I was homeless for, the, like, the third time in my life. And uh, that was, like, 2008. So, still had music, though. In the music scene, how much kind of unconditional acceptance did you feel? And, like, is, you know, would those parties be... You know, could they be considered like a safe space, or did you still um, face some of the same stuff? Yeah, I mean, there was some bullshit there. I mean, I had a nice group of friends, but I mean, I saw some shit. Like the sexism was still there, and you know, I had people trying to explain how to plug in a fucking mixer. Let's put the thing in the hole. It's not that hard. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty basic function. No, I mean, I felt pretty good. I had, like I said, I had a core group of friends, but it was still like, you know, like I was saying with like, especially I wanted to be in a space where there was not just that hedonism, but also um, I wanted people to give a shit and I wanted to be around queer people. It's always been a little bit harder too because I've always been a little bit older than everybody in the scene I was in. So I got into the rave scene, I guess when I was about... 23, and like all my friends around me were like 19. So I've always been just a little bit older in mm-hmm. every, every step of this. I still am. Mm-hmm. So, so that's been a little strange always, mm-hmm. but it's, it's cool now because I have quite a few other friends who are women, who are DJs, uh, some of whom are queer, some of whom are not, who are like in their late 30s or early 40s. So, so that's kind of nice. I feel a little bit more settled mm-hmm. in that. But, um, yeah, I don't know that it was unconditional acceptance. I don't know that we get that too much in life in general. But um, the condition was always I can walk in looking like a weirdo, but when I walk in with a record crate, it's always a little bit different. (laughs) Which I kind of like, I used to make my friends carry them so I could just walk in and, and not have them do that. It's like, you can treat me however the fuck you want. Just, I don't want you to treat me a different way because I have that crate in my hand. Just, I'm going to go up to the speaker and I'm going to freak the speaker for a while and we're all in the same boat. So, yeah. Sorry. I'm very rambly. I'm very caffeinated. <laughs> <laughs> um, you Slightly said jet lagged. <laughs> uh, you said something yesterday that, you know, is, is sort of a common refrain that um, in DJing, as in many other things, um, if you're a woman, you kind of have to be however many times better than um, the best man in the room in order to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And um, you've got this really uh, technically proficient style. Um, you know, when you play, there's sort of a feeling of like mastery to the way that you do it. Um, you know, oh. all the, well, you know, fat, um, fast mixes, a lot of cuts, and um, I get bored very easily. <laughs> but it's, I, I guess I'm just wondering that um, that feeling of an extra burden of needing to prove yourself. Do you think that shaped your style at all, the way you play? Oh, I think probably. I don't know that I consciously thought about it. I mean, part of it is because I get really bored very easily. And I just, I don't see the point in putting a record on, putting another record on, and standing there. <laughs> like, have a smoke. I don't smoke anymore. But, you know, it's, it's boring unless I stuff to do. There's knobs and buttons. Let's press them all. <laughs> Piloting a spaceship. Um, but yeah, for sure. It's like there was always, like I said, I, I mentioned yesterday the uh, the sort of semicircle of dudes standing around, <laughs> arms crossed, waiting for you to fuck up. So my trick was that I didn't. <laughs> so and it was always kind of funny. Like oh, <laughs> this one particular, a couple of particular incidents that. Uh, so I was at this party and. I was getting ready to play, you know, plugging my headphones in, and, and my buddy came over. He's like, see that dude over there? I was like, yeah. He's like, he's talking mad shit. I was like, really? He's like, dust him. <laughs> <laughs> I 
double copies, opened up double copies and just start beat juggling. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh. uh, good timing there. <laughs> you get the great pose. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would do shit like that just to like mash it in their face a little. Like, yeah. And there was, uh, I was playing this party in Detroit. There was this old warehouse, or it's not a warehouse, it was an old theater um, on Van Dyke in uh, Detroit. Beautiful old theater. And um, my girlfriend at the time told me after the set, she's like, you see those two guys over there? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, yeah, they were talking shit. I'm like, was it a girl thing or was it, is it a girl or a guy thing? Because that happens too. Short hair. Um, she's like, oh, I think the last one. I was like, hmm. I was like, so the real question is, what were they doing 45 minutes later? She's like, oh, they were up on the speaker. I'm like, I win. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, I do kind of like to stuff it in their faces. I, you know, if they're going to, if, if dudes are going to cop an attitude about it, they're going to get it right back. I don't think every woman should have to do that because I don't think I'm pretty like in your face and you know <clears throat> I don't like to put up a shit. But you know nobody should have to be like that. Mm. If you just want to DJ, you shouldn't have to you know throw your weight around. I can do it. I, I, I think I kind of do that because I know other women can't or just don't want to. Mm. So it's like, oh, okay, I'll be the one. You know, I'll be the asshole. That's cool. Yeah, I mean it but seems like that sucks. Yeah. But it seems like you, you sort of, um, you don't mind, or even like you sort of thrive in this state of defiance. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, even just, that would be accurate. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I'm interested, yesterday you, you mentioned something about, um, you said basically that you don't think that your music is um, like overtly political. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's kind of interesting to think about because there's the name non-compliant that sort of signals something straight away. And also that nowadays you're kind of an outspoken personality. Um, in many cases, your politics will sort of precede you, or people, you know, see your Twitter account before they hear your music. And then even setting all that aside, I sort of feel like um, just the sound of your tracks and the way that you DJ, it sort of conveys this, as you put it, like in your face, you know, kind of confrontational. Spirit. I don't know. Does does that ring true to you at all? Or do you think? So? Well, I mean, it's like we were talking about yesterday when we talked about you know the personal is political. I mean, who I am is is not cannot be in any way detached from either the music I make or how I DJ. So I mean, I'm sure that's there. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't necessarily when I'm making music, I don't necessarily go into it with that thought process. Sure. Um, I have. And it's interesting the differences in what I make when I when I approach it that way. Like sometimes I might just have like a sample that I want to use, but I don't necessarily want you to hear that sample. I used to sample Fight Club a lot, and I would turn <laughs> quotes from Fight Club into drum sounds, so you would never actually know what they were. I knew they were there, but you don't have to. So sometimes the process, um, I might be thinking about those things, but I mean at the end of the day, like. I want people to dance. I want people to get out of their heads. And yes, you know, the non-compliant thing was meant to be overtly like, fuck you. You know, with techno, sometimes the only way you can really get your message across, I think, is just track titles. Mm -hmm. oh, God. Also, I always hate that. A1, untitled. A2, untitled. Like, oh my God, you're boring as fuck. <laughs> Like, you can't even think of a nonsense word. Like, <laughs> like Umek used to do, like, weird nonsensical words. It's like, cool, man, do whatever. But untitled? <laughs> Fuck off. God, that's boring. So I at least wanted something interesting for a name. But yeah, and I just kind of, with the non-compliant thing, I was like, throw some feminist literature stuff in there. Like, uh, the first EP, Airless Spaces, is actually a book by Shulamith Firestone, who also wrote uh, The Dialectic of Sex, which is essentially a feminist um, dissection of Marxism. <laughs> and it's really interesting, and I highly recommend to read. But yeah, I just thought that would be one way where, you know, if somebody wonders, what's that come from? Like, they can kind of go down a road and find something. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, using... 
uh, Nolites te bastardes carborundorum. It's from The Handmaid's Tale. It's slang, basically, that means never let the bastards grind you down. And, um, and I kind of wanted people to look it, look it up, mm-hmm. find out what it comes from. And of course, now you have The Handmaid's Tale, which is hard to take, but an excellent show to watch. But yeah, it was kind of my way, like, if you want to find out more, or if you ask me what it is, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. you know, so that was one way to kind of throw that in there. But the music itself, like, I think in this culture where we're just bombarded with shit, especially now, especially in the States right now, but not just the States, just being out somewhere and being unapologetically yourself and being in front of a speaker and having a moment where it's just you and the music, and you know, like you're literally, this is your temporary autonomous zone to steal a Hakeem Bey concept. Um, that's the one place where they can't touch you, you know? So that's inherently political as well, to just be in that space, even if it's for, even if it's for a moment. If the party gets busted in 10 minutes, you still had that. Hmm. So, Yeah, another um, sort of political thing I want to talk about was um, there's a, a quote that I've uh, heard you use before that about, um, I forget who it's from, but it's, America hates the artist. Anais Nen. Yeah, I'm just sort of interested in that idea. I mean, is that something that um, you face in your own life as an artist? Um, that there's the U.S. Uh, sort of systematically is, uh, you know, disfavors artists? It's, it's kind of multiple levels. Like, especially now, I feel like, you know, a lot of different countries, Germany being one, Canada being one, that I know personally, you know, definitely have more invested in... Uh, you know, cultural things. Like, they're, they're definitely, you know, in, in Canada, if you want to make a series, you get money for it. You know, um, Germany is very friendly to artists, at least insofar as I know, um, especially techno artists, um, because it's something that, that it's part of the culture and people appreciate it. And I just don't feel like there's ever really been that, you know. We have a government that is continually trying to defund any kind of, of funds for artists at all. And there's only a certain kind of artist that gets that anyway. You know, you're not going to get funds from the government for making techno there, or you're not going to get any support at all. Plus, America, and this is not to say it's only in America, but America has this particularly capitalist <laughs> way of looking at anything, um, especially art. It feels like if you're not doing the thing they want, you're definitely they don't give a shit. And most people think of art or music or any kind of creative pursuits as a hobby. You get a real job. And then you can do your little art. And the practical, the practical methods, and of course I'm speaking more of modern times than when, where that quote came from. But, you know, and right now, I mean, just yesterday, you know, Trump signed an executive order to um, basically kill the subsidies for healthcare for lower income people. Guess who are lower income people in America? Generally, well, a lot of people, but artists definitely fall into that category. So it's very hard for anyone in any kind of creative field to not have a day job because our healthcare is tied to our employment. There's no way for you to actually just be an artist because you're fucked. You have no healthcare. And I went without healthcare for 25 years, and it was terrifying. And my healthcare now is garbage. So sorry, work. But um, it's hard. It's expensive. You know, yeah. I work for a nonprofit. It's hard for them to afford really thorough healthcare. So, so the whole system is basically built to make sure that you are a you know a functional little worker cog. You know, and because creativity doesn't feed the capitalist beast. So, and, you know, plus creativity, those artists, those are the kind of revolutionary types we don't need. <laughs> I mean, I honestly think that's part of the, the mindset, you know, artists and, and students and intellectuals are fairly hated, especially by the kind of people we have in power right now. Mm-hmm. So that got dark. <laughs> Is that um, something you're facing now? I mean, you're getting more gigs, it seems like you 
if I would imagine you might be sizing up the possibility of just going full time as an artist, but then yeah, you would have to quit your job. Which would suck too, because I really like my job. What do you do? I well, I'm IT. I work in IT, but I work for a nonprofit that essentially, essentially, my job is fighting the man and getting paid. Like we, <clears throat> boring moment. Uh, we deal with energy policy predominantly, so we lobby at the state legislature and we intervene in rate cases with the large utilities that provide electricity and gas mm. service. Um, they use our state legislature basically to gut any kind of consumer protections or regulations to s just literally screw the people of Indiana. So, um, and make sure we're, you know, burning coal <laughs> like all the fucking time. So, yeah, that's my job. Um, so I get to see the, I don't know that I'd call them intricacies, the horse shit <laughs> that happens in politics in state politics specifically, but more broadly, um, national policy. So, yeah, I've been there for over 10, 10 years total. Yeah, that's, it's been an interesting thought process right now because it's definitely becoming a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. I have this conversation with a few other people, too, who are kind of in the same boat. They're working full-time jobs, and they like their jobs, sort of. But it's very hard. Like, I, I took an unpaid vacation. To, to we we don't get three-week vacations. <laughs> like, my vacation is usually about 10 days max for six months, which is actually fairly extensive for Americans. A lot of Americans, we do not have mandatory vacation time. We don't have mandatory, like, parental leave, none of that. So your ability to take any kind of time off is basically if your job will let you. Hmm. So... But yeah, that healthcare consideration is a big one. Like, if I'm still in the states, I can't quit my job. <laughs> if I want healthcare, and I'm 45, I need healthcare. So, that's a very profound, you know, uh, structural force kind of influencing your career. Yeah, and that's what I mean. That's what a lot of Americans are facing right now. So it's it's very forefront in my mindset. It's also a consideration of, I mean, don't think the consideration isn't there to leave. That's why that whole conversation last right. night in the panel was, I was like, you know. Well, to summarize, it was uh, that there was. Yeah, it was a conversation of if you're in a place that's, it was specifically talking about artists or, or um, folks in the Middle East, should they stay or should they go, to quote the clash. Um, you know, should they stay and try and make it better, or should they leave to be safer? And um, a lot of people said stay, and I think that that's up to the ind individual. I think sometimes, basically, I think if you're 25 and you want to keep kicking, do it, man, stay. If you're 45 and you're fucking tired, leave. You know, there is a time where you get to say, okay, I've been doing all this, I've been working my ass off to help and I do care about what happens you know, in my community and my country, but I'd also like to be happy. You know? And I don't think that's selfish. I think you're not gonna do anybody any good if you're fucking depressed and dead. <laughs> you know? I mean, literally. So, um, so that consideration is still there. It's just, um, that's quite an extensive thing to think about. <laughs> Lucas, yeah. before you said um, that you, um, so far, you haven't stayed in Indiana necessarily by choice. Yeah, so you, you said you'd get out of there if you could. Yeah. But now uh, it's hovering into view, maybe, that you could yeah, leave. I'm curious what'll happen. We'll see. I don't, uh, nothing's a guarantee, you know? And um, I don't want to take anything for granted. I think that's really at the core of it. And I just kind of want to let things play out and see what happens and enjoy the ride for what it is. But, um, this could be a great tour and then nothing ever happens and that would still be pretty rad, I have to say. <laughs> um, yeah, the considerations there, but my, my parents live in Evansville, so that would be, that's the hardest one right there. Yeah, sure. So I don't want to be super far from my mom, yeah. but uh, I keep trying to convince her. I'm like, would you move to Germany with me? <laughs> she lived in Germany, actually, when my dad was stationed here, but, um, or there, but I don't know what will happen. I'm just kind of letting it all happen right now. Just 
sitting back pondering the options. <laughs> so we'll see. It, I have moved. I've moved out of Evans or out of Indiana a couple of times, um, but it they were massive failures, um, which you know does happen. I learned a lot. It's easier to fail when you're 25 than it is when you're older. So that always comes into play. Mm-hmm. You know, I need things like health insurance. I need a bit of bit more stability. I used to be fairly chaotic, so and I was fine with that. But I have a cat to take care of. <laughs> you know. But it, that, that's the flip side, though. You know what? I'm single. I have a cat. Those are my <laughs> commitments. You know, I would like to be close to my mom. But, um, but that actually does give me a little bit of freedom that uh, somebody else my age with a family and kids doesn't have. So sometimes being single is useful. <laughs> this would be one of those times. So that, it could happen. I guess I'd like to open it up to the audience, if you guys have any questions. Uh, first one is, what's your cat's name? My cat's name is Socrates. <laughs> He's a philosopher kitty. Sounds like an amazing cat. Um, awesome. And I guess my, my second question is... Um, don't think I don't have pictures. Oh, yes. <laughs> Couldn't tell if it was overkill. Shit. Right on the lock screen. Socrates. Love it. Hi, right Socrates. <laughs> he likes yogurt. Our so does Penny. And cuddling. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said that when you start making music, you're not necessarily like in a political mindset or you're not setting out to make it. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about um, what types of things you are thinking about when you sit down to make a track? Like, what is your musical process like? Bleeps and bloops. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, uh, well, A, one thing I've realized, like I used to think when I was younger that I had to be like, I had to be angry to create. And then I realized, no, I actually have to be happy. And that's when I'm like feeling kind of down, that's not actually where I want to be. Like I'd rather just be with the cat in front of the Netflix. But um, well, I got into, um, I struggled for a really long time with, with making music at all because I was doing everything, and not to diss this, but uh, you know, I used computers because they were the easiest, cheapiest, cheapest, cheapest way to start. Um, and I used uh, you know, software like Reason and Ableton, but I just, ugh, looking at a screen and mousing around, it was just such, uh, was such a process. I didn't like it. Um, and a few years ago, um, I actually got into hardware. So, so now it's really when I sit down, it's, it's just more of an experimentation thing. Um, and what's hilarious is I thought I was going to end up making like harder techno. And it's all like bouncy as hell. So, and that's just what gets me going when I'm sitting there <laughs> twisting knobs. But yeah, I just I want to get into the machine and see what I can eke out of it. So it, it's very just fun and experimental, really. That's all I'm thinking of is like, what, you know, what weird noise can I pull out of this thing today? So, and then if it gets me bouncing in my seat, then I've done my job. <laughs> so yeah, it's not very, not very deep. <laughs> Anybody else? So, <laughs> if somebody gave you Obviously not the U.S. government. <laughs> if somebody gave you a really big like, bag of money, like really, really big bag of money, like hundreds of thousands. Love these hypotheticals. <laughs> they said to you, listen, given your history and your experience and your age and your knowledge, you know, really specifically about you, what would you do to facilitate or improve or create or, or make that might improve the situation for women and non-binary people uh, in this field? What would you do? What would, do you think, do you have any ideas, that, just sort of gut ideas about if, like, if someone just gave you the key and said, make something amazing happen, what would you do? Um, well, I always think, I, I think you have to think small and think community, but I would think like, you know, one thing I always wished I had was like a, uh, and there are some cities that have this, like a, a LGBT community center type thing, but 
Um, if I were to do it, it would be more like, it might not be just for LGBT folks, but it would have to be like, if you come there, you have to be cool. But like a place where people can just go and like make things, you know, where you can learn how to make music or you can learn how to make art or you can learn, you know, screen printing or book printing or, you know, any kind of creative endeavor where you could be with other people who care about those things who aren't going to judge you for it. I don't know that that's going to make everything extraordinarily better, but I think community is always, to me, at the core of everything. I, I, it's deep in my little punk rock soul, <laughs> you know, is, is uh, not necessarily a scene, but community. You know, people with, with common goals. Um, and they can be disparate, but still, you know, just focusing on wanting to, to move through the world with some purpose and to have people around you who, who care about that. So yeah, just a place for gathering and, and learning and nerding out is probably what I would do. Also, with cats. <laughs> yes, I am a crazy cat lady. <laughs> Anything else? Oh, to, to add to that, I, I have also had this discussion. Um, <laughs> I'm in a name checker right now. Um, Erica from Detroit and I talk about this all the time. Like, okay, so let's have a techno commune, and we're going to have cats. We're going to have a room with synths. And we decided the other day that we have to make sure to have people with other skills, so we're not like 50 DJs going, "How do you fix the solar panels?" You know. <laughs> so. But every time we're like, man, we needed to, we're back to the techno commune again, aren't we? So yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking, you know, just a nice quiet space where there is quiet space, but there's also creative space and possibly away from people. Cool. Hi. Hi. Um. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> I was just wondering if you had, so like in your... 20 somewhat years of being in the rave and techno scene like right now I'm facing a lot of trouble because people in like my community that like my techno community our techno community who understand like the language to be political and like the language to be an ally and like they understand how to perform allyship but it's like you're the fucking perpetrator, dude. Sorry. <laughs> like, no, you're right. Like, they, it just makes my blood boil, and like, it's been a conversation that's been happening, and like, I was just wondering if you had any like experience or advice or just like, hey, you're totally not the only person dealing with that <laughs> at all. Um, yeah, I was just talking to a friend of mine this morning about this exact same thing. She was just like, how do you, how do you even keep going? Nolites de bastardes carborundorum, never let the bastards grind you down. And I know that's a really hard thing to do, to keep going in the midst of all of that. You know, we, we are in this really interesting time. I've never seen this in, in the punk rock scene, in the rave scene, in techno. I've never seen the kind of progress and also backlash that we're dealing with right now. I'm happy to see that people are becoming more aware and it's always, it's hard. It's hard, you know, I'm, I'm queer but I'm also white and I'm also cisgendered, although slightly mannish in appearance. So, you know, I understand that it can sometimes be hard to adjust your mode of thinking, but it's like you fucking do it because you don't wanna be a dick to people. You know, I, I just, I don't like it when people are a dick to me, so <laughs> I don't want to be a jerk to anybody else. But, you know, we have these, I don't know that I have an answer to this. I'm very stubborn. That's why I'm still here. And literally to me, it's like, don't let them fucking win. You know, you don't get to fucking dictate the parameters of my life and my joy and my happiness and my creativity. You know, and you'll try. And you know what, to be, to be perfectly honest, I don't, I don't get booked in my hometown at all. And part of that, part of that's because if it's a techno party, it's probably gotta be me throwing it or, or one of my friends and we're all just busy. Um, but part of it is I called some people out very publicly. Um, a couple of big promoters, I called them out on some really blatantly racist and sexist promotional tactics and boy howdy, they love that, <laughs> you know? Um, 
so they just don't book me anymore. And I was just like, okay, fuck you. I'll go do this thing over here. So, I mean, sometimes you just have to go do your own fucking thing, and that's still going to be hard, too. I don't... We are in an interesting time where we are having a lot of progress, I think, where we are hearing more voices. And I'm genuinely overjoyed about that. But... I don't know if anybody knows the La Tigre song, 50 Years of Ridicule. It's a concept that any kind of progress you have will have 50 years of ridicule and backlash against it. And I mean, that's what, that's, come on, that's why we have fucking Trump as president in America, is we had Barack Obama and we had, I mean, he's not perfect by any stretch, but we had some progress. And suddenly, you know, more people of color, more queer people, more trans people, more women had voices. And, can't have that. Y'all just better shut up and step back. Yeah. They, there's always going to be that backlash, I think. And um, that sounds depressing. And it is. Every once in a while, I'm like, how can you even think like this? How is this even possible? But there's always going to be people like that that you can't convince that, you know, your existence. What's that fucking quote? It's hard to convince a man of something when his paycheck depends on him not understanding it. There's a lot of that, too. And I think that that's one thing we have to recognize, like... Sorry, I'm going to go on a rant for a second. Roll with me. <laughs> so a lot of the discrimination and gatekeeping we see is literally people trying to entrench themselves in power, trying to entrench themselves in wealth, or even just a job. They could be some poor schmuck and they're just trying to keep their job. But, you know, suddenly when all these new people are coming in, now that the women's can vote and get jobs and stuff, suddenly the mediocre fuckers have to compete with women and people of color and queer people and trans people. And, you know, there's no gate to keep them out. And this has actually been borne out in studies that when uh, it was specifically about women, um, but when more women are in positions in a company, mediocre men are the ones who get kicked out. Sorry if there's any, I don't think there's any mediocre men in here. Surely you're all wonderful. but, but yeah, and they know it. So suddenly there's no entitlement. They can't just, you know, I mean, fuck, God, coming back to DJing. I know I'm rambling right now, but you know, this is the shit that drives me crazy. Like there's always some jackass who's like, oh, she, she like train wrecked once. So she's a horrible DJ or something. You know, it's like how many fucking dudes have you ever heard just bollocks it all fucking up, you know? And you never said that about them at all. But um, so mediocre dudes can just, they're fine. You can't, and we come back to, you can't be a mediocre woman. You have to be always perfect, which also fucking sucks. Cause you know, we fuck up too. Not very often, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have a solution. My solution is just, you know, find more people who think like you and fucking hold tight to that community, you know? And you know what? Those people who are there with you in that fight, in that moment, those are the ones who are going to be with you for a really fucking long time. You know, that's how you find your people. You find your people, you find your crew. And yeah, those are lifetime people. So... (laughs) And I mean, where life is struggle, it's not going to be perfect. But if you can find those people and just keep plowing through, you'll, yeah. And then we'll take over the world. (laughs) Join me or die. (laughs) 